Let's pray together for a moment. Lord, we thank you this morning and we welcome you. Come, Holy Spirit, come and fill our hearts, fill our minds, fill my words, open the scriptures, we pray, that we might be led to Jesus. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I wonder if you are familiar with the term game changer. It's an expression that began in the realm of sports to describe an athlete who affects the game. As in LeBron James is a game changer for the Los Angeles Lakers. Michael Jordan was a game changer for the Chicago Bulls. Sean Norris is a game changer when it comes to playing soccer. Trevor Spencer is not a game changer. Oh, I'm sorry, Trevor. You see the sympathy he's getting from you this morning? Ah, oh, neither am I. Jake Willis, our worship guy over there, is a game changer when it comes to trampoline volleyball. I know this because he talked me into being on his team, and it's, thank God he's there. Let's just put it that way. The term game changer is not just about a person, though it definitely refers to an athlete. It, it can also mean a pivotal moment in a game that changes everything. It's a turning point. You might think back, those of you who watch football, the most recent Super Bowl, there was a point at which the Kansas City Chiefs quarterback, Patrick Mahomes, completed a pass on third and 15 in the fourth quarter that turned the momentum of the game. It was a game changer, and they ended up winning the Super Bowl. Now, that term, game changer, is, it's moved beyond sports. It's in the common parlance these days, and it generally means something new, something new that brings an effect. It alters things, often altering traditional practices and concepts and upends the established order. For instance, the development of the Internet was a game changer for the world, right? It's changed business, it's changed the way we live. It's a game changer, it's a turning point. When we get to our gospel lesson here in Luke chapter six, we're at a game changer moment for not only Jesus, but also for the Pharisees, for religion in general. It's a turning point. He's turning things upside down with regard to how people relate to God, how people worship, how people engage in religion itself. And this game-changing moment begins over these two Sabbaths that we hear about there in Luke 6. Because in these moments, he is establishing his authority, his authority over everything that the people of God held dear. And it's going to get him in some trouble, we'll see, as we look at the text. If you'll look with me at Luke 6, beginning at verse 1. On a Sabbath, everybody say the Sabbath. While Jesus was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now we'll pause there. Does it feel like they're pouncing? It should, because they are. And Dr. Luke, who is the writer of the gospel, who really wants us to have certainty about the person of Jesus, 
Well, he intends for us to experience it in that way. They are pouncing on Jesus. They're basically throwing a flag and going, rule breaker, violation, penalty. See, the Pharisees were the rule keepers. They believed that the best way to serve God, really the only way to serve God, was to keep the rules, to do everything right with regards to the Torah or the law. And over time, they had become the self-appointed arbiters of who's in and who's out based upon the rules. They had become the jury and the judge over all things religious in the nation of Israel. Now, their expectation, I think, of this upstart, Jesus, was that he would line up with them, right? He would get in their party. He would get along with their ranks. He would honor their customs. He would follow their traditions. And Jesus has already strained his relationship with these guys. It began in chapter 5. Jesus healed the paralytic man. And he said to the paralytic man, your sins are forgiven. And they said, whoa, that's awfully presumptuous of you, Jesus. Only God can forgive sins. Yeah, they got that part right. They just missed who Jesus is. And of course, he strained the relationship even further because then he went out and he got Levi, who was also known as Matthew, the tax collector. Incidentally, he would write the Gospel of Matthew later. But at this point, Levi was hated. He was, a, he was despised. He was a traitor. He was dirty and unclean. And Jesus said, Levi, you get to be in my inner circle. And they thought, whoa, that's not the way we do it around here. Then Levi throws a party and invites all the sinners in town. And guess who's having a ball right there in the middle of them all? It's Jesus. He's not sinning, but sinners have this comfort around him. Unlike the Pharisees who expected Jesus to be rigid and uptight in the midst of these sinners. And then, of course, what we heard on Ash Wednesday was, you know, they're watching Jesus' disciples and they're like, why aren't you fasting like John's disciples? Why aren't you fasting like us? We do it twice a week. And they're starting to question, you know, maybe Jesus' devotional life is, you know, it's a little shaky here. That's what's happening with these guys as they're watching Jesus and throwing a flag on that day. They're watching him critically to see where he will trip up. And it all has to do with Sabbath observance. Now, we don't necessarily get that because we live so far away. I need to give you a little bit of Jewish history and understanding. It'll help the Gospels open up to you in ways they may not have opened to you before. We need to understand that Sabbath observance. In fact, everybody say Sabbath. Sabbath observance was one of the main distinguishing marks of what it meant to be the people of God and specifically the people of Israel. It's the heart along with dietary restrictions and along with circumcision, it's the heart of the Jewish religion. Y'all, that hasn't changed, by the way. You can go to Israel today, and on the Sabbath, which begins Friday evening at sundown and goes till Saturday evening at sundown, almost the whole nation, at least the Jewish part of the nation, stops. But if you go to an ultra-Orthodox neighborhood, they put up barricades so nobody will drive into their neighborhoods. 
Not so much because they're worried about the cars, but they're worried that the cars might cause them to have to take extra steps, and in the process, they might break the Sabbath. And so this this rule-keeping was at the heart, and particularly rule-keeping around the Sabbath was at the heart of the people of Israel. And why is that? Well, first of all, the Sabbath is important. Genesis 2, God wove it into the creation itself. On the seventh day, God rested. Not because he needed to. God doesn't need to rest. God wove the Sabbath into the creation because he knew that we would need to rest. And some of us who go nonstop, seven days a week, in and out, are wondering why are our bodies breaking down? Why are our emotions breaking down? Why are our spirits breaking down? Why are our minds breaking down? Well, it could be because many of us don't live according to the owner's manual, the way God created things. And so we're out of sync with the way we have been designed. So the Sabbath is important. It's vital. It's a good thing. It's intended for rest. It's a gift God gives. So important, it made the top 10 list. You guys know the top 10 list, right? That's the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, it made the Ten Commandments. Anybody know which commandment the Sabbath is? I heard four up here, former Baptist. (laughs) Yep, it is four, right? The, The first three are pretty much all about God, right? There's no other God, just one God. God is to be number one. Then no idols, no other smaller gods. Then honor God's name, which means honor God's character. And then the first thing that really involves people is keep the Sabbath holy. Don't work on the Sabbath. It's a gift God has given. So it's in creation. It's in the Ten Commandments. Here's what happened, though. Here's what happened. Pay attention, especially if you tend toward rule following. What the rule followers did was they began to ask the question, well, what actually constitutes work? Because we don't want to do that. And over time, the scribes and the rabbis, the teachers, the Pharisees, they developed a whole bunch of books of interpreting the law so that all of life was governed by rules of what was in and what was out, of what you could do and what you're not supposed to do. It's called the Mishnah. Everybody say Mishnah. Mishnah. There's your free Hebrew word for the day. 63 books of interpretation covered all of life in detail. Y'all, there were 39 categories of work alone that were subdivided into subcategories of things you couldn't do on the Sabbath. When they throw the flag at Jesus and his boys for taking grain on the Sabbath as they're walking through the field, they're basically getting breakfast When they throw the flag on these guys, it's not based upon God's law. It's based upon the Mishnah, their rules, their traditions, their customs. They're saying, Jesus, you're not doing it our way, and therefore, you're a lawbreaker. So how does Jesus answer? Verse 3, Jesus answered, have you not read... And then he goes on to tell a story about David. I want to point out a couple of things here. I don't have time to go into the whole story of David. I'll give you the highlights. But, But he starts with, have you not read? He's referring to the Bible and what he's doing to these rule followers who have all these man-made traditions that they demand people keep. 
He says, have you not read God's word? Do you not know the Bible? Because what you're referring to is not the Bible. It's your stuff. And Jesus elevates the scripture as the real authority of life. It's been my experience over the years that whenever I've, I've, I've dealt with the issue of the intensity that religion brings against grace, religion always fights against grace. The best thing you can do is talk about the scripture. It doesn't mean the person who's the legalist or the religionist is going to listen, but it does mean that you have God on your side. Not to beat somebody with the Bible, that would be uncharitable, but to lay before them the truth of what the Lord has said. Have you not read? Jesus tells them. And then he quotes from 1 Samuel 21. He's elevating God's word over their rules. And the story he chooses shows this. It shows that there are certain times when parts of the law are set aside without condemnation for first principles like human needs to be met. Let me say that again. There are times when parts of the law are set aside without condemnation in order for first principles like human needs to be met. See, technically it wasn't lawful for David to eat that bread. It's called the bread of the presence. Think of communion bread, but it tastes good, right? <laughs> I mean, it, it, that's where we, where we get that idea from. It goes, this is an Old Testament thing that he brought forward. Only the priests were supposed to eat that bread. And yet here's David, the king of Israel, not yet the king, but a man in need. And he's able to eat the bread without condemnation. Why? Because the bread of God's presence was intended to bring life, not to withhold from somebody who had the desperate need of starvation. God's presence brings life. The bread of the presence was supposed to bring life. And so the ceremonial law that said it's only for guys like me, pastors, or in that case, priests, only they get it. Wait a minute, that can be set apart for a human need. These guys are hungry. The gift of God should be given to the hungry. The gift of God should be given to those in need. Jesus is trying to point something to them. But there are more important things like the love of people than the rules that we so often try to follow. I'm not against rules. I'm just saying we have to watch out that rules don't supersede love. They cannot supersede love or we get out of line with Jesus. And then Jesus throws the game changer at them in verse five. Look at his words. The son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Son of man is his title that he calls himself. Son of man is a title that he took out of the scripture itself. It's from Daniel 7. Daniel had a vision of a time in which Messiah would come. And the Messiah would be a man, but would be more than a man, would be everlasting. And it's one of those early pictures of man and God as one person who would be the king forever. Jesus says, I am the son of man, the Messiah, the prophet spoke about. And as the son of man, I am also Lord of the Sabbath. And what he does is he puts himself over the Sabbath. And there's only one person who's over the Sabbath. And that is God. So many people say Jesus never said he was God. If you know how to read the scriptures, you will see Jesus clearly identifies himself as God here. 
I'm the boss. This is my day. And I can interpret it the way that I please. I can adjust the rules when it's necessary to bring about life. And that's what he was doing for his disciples. They were hungry. It was the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, we should have parties like we had this morning. We should be eating and feasting and enjoying the day at the gift of God. Jesus is saying, as God, I can feed these boys. Because they should be celebrating. They shouldn't be starving on this day. That's the game changer with the Pharisees right there. Because he's gone over the line at this point. Who's this crazy man think he is? That's the same heart in the second Sabbath episode. See, in the first instance, they're coming after him, but now he goes after them. And he does it again on a Sabbath. He does it again in the synagogue, right? I'll just unpack it briefly. He calls the man up with the withered hand. And he asks him this question. He asks him the question, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? Incidentally, the place was silent. It's like crickets while this is going on. It doesn't say it in the text, but I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure every eye is riveted on him. In fact, they're looking. They're looking to accuse him. And so he just goes right into the heart of it because he's bold as a lion. He's God. He is the Savior. He is the Lord. And he has designed this world so that the life of God can come. And this religious tradition is choking the life out of people. And you need to understand, as he calls this man forward to stand in front of him, the man just comes up. He's got this withered hand. We don't know what it is exactly. Has it been crushed? And over time, it's been withered. Is it a deformity? The Mishnah, we again go back to their rule book. The Mishnah said... You can't practice medicine on the Sabbath unless it's life-threatening. So, for instance, ladies, if you were having a baby, you could call in a midwife, and that wouldn't be a Sabbath violation. If you were about to die, you could call in a physician, and they wouldn't be working if they administered care. However, this is how crazy this stuff gets. If you break your arm, you have to wait to the next day before you can get anybody to set it. Because, of course, that would be work. Do do you see the nuttiness of this? Just nod your head a little bit. I know you're out there. Okay? So what does Jesus do? They're looking to see if he's going to heal on the Sabbath, and he knows what they're thinking. He calls the man forward. He's got a withered hand. This can wait, by the way. This is a non-life-threatening issue. The guy's had the withered hand for a while. It would be okay to wait till the next day. But right in the middle of that, he comes Jesus says, stretch out your hand. And what happens? It's healed. Does Jesus do any work? Nope, he doesn't move a muscle. He's sitting right there in the teacher's seat. And with a word, with a word of authority, he speaks healing and the man is healed. See, Jesus is trying to show the nature of God to them and to us. It is God's nature to bring life. It is God's nature to bring healing. It is God's nature to bring hope. And Jesus is the one who's come to show us clearly what the real God is like. And he stands in his authority as Savior, as Son of Man, as Lord, as God, and he speaks a word of healing, showing that he really is the Lord of the Sabbath. And verse 11 says, The Pharisees were filled with 
fury. They're seething. The veins are popping out in the sides of their heads. Guys are shaking. They're so full of energy. And they discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. This is the beginning of the battle that will ultimately culminate in the religious people killing the Savior of the world. It's a game changer. The reason it's a game changer is that religion, hear this, this is so important for us. As liturgical people, as people who love God, we have to be careful because religion hates freedom. Religion binds us away from freedom if we're not careful. And ultimately, religion's always easier than following the living God. Because you can measure your religion, but it's a lot murkier walking in grace. Following a living Savior will take you to places that some of your friends will look at you and go, why are you hanging with those people? And yet that's the nature of the Spirit of God. He takes us to places where we bring life and where he through us brings life. Let's apply this and we'll wrap up. Here's the thing, this is probably going to sound like something that your Mima told you. There is never a wrong day to do something good. That sounds like folksy wisdom, doesn't it? There is never a wrong day to do something good. That's at the heart of what Jesus is teaching. The life of God, the gospel of God, the good news. Let me give you freedom. If one day you're on your way to church... And you notice somebody broken down on the side of the road and it's in your power to help them, but you're running late. Just stop and help them. And I give you a pass that Sunday, okay? (laughs) Because there's never a wrong day to do something right. You see somebody who's in need, who needs help, just do it. How will they know that our Savior is alive when we start living his way and letting him live his way through us? So there's never a wrong day to do something good. Second thing is this. Legalists like the Pharisees always want to debate the rules and to dicker over the little details. Details are good. I'm I'm not against details. It's when the details elevate or the rules elevate over faith and love for God and love for people that we get in trouble and we move away from the Spirit. God loves people. And what that means, of course, is this, is that God loves you. And that's incredibly good news. That's what Jesus has come to show us. And then in receiving that love, invite us, because we've been forgiven, we've received grace, to then be bearers of that to others. And catch this, really important, especially people who aren't just like us. See, because it's hard to love people who are different. It's hard to love people who maybe you wouldn't pick as your first line of friends. That may be what he's doing with us here. We got two communities coming together. We got multiple age groups coming together. We might have a grand experiment that Jesus is inviting us into to go, can you lay down your preferences to love each other? Can you enter in together to see what I might do and make you good news to the world around you? I think there's a grand opportunity. 
but it will take us being willing to show grace, forgiveness, mercy, and love, and perhaps to be mistaken and misunderstood along the way. I'll go there, and I hope you'll go there with me, because I do it for the sake of the gospel. That's good news. But it's not always comfortable. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you this day in the moments, even when we feel awkward in this service, that it is your grace that saves us, that it's the heart of God you've come to reveal to us. And we pray a mercy would so fill each of our lives and our corporate life as a community that your spirit would break out in revival, in good news, not just in this building, but wherever we go as your people. For the sake of a hurting and broken and lost world, O God, may it be so. May you do it through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.